You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 25. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Chris Sims. On today's show, we talk to Dr. Dan Bigman about ground-penetrating radar and some other geophysical tools. Dan has a company that does this for archaeological projects and other clients based in the southeastern United States. Stick around to the end for a very special offer that's only open to APM listeners. Let's get to the show. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me uh, after uh, it's only one episode, but it's like a one-month hiatus. Uh, Chris, how's it going? Great. Uh, I'm reporting from New Zealand, soon to be back in the States, uh, and uh, it's good to be back. Yeah, and I have noticed, um, and this is sort of ironic to say, I don't know if ironic is the right word, but there is a, a slight lag sometimes when you talk and when we respond, so we might be talking over each other. And it's funny that there's a lag because you're actually like 21 hours in the future right now for me. So, I don't know. <laughs> Speaking back yeah. in Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, that's what we're all about is uh, science here. <laughs> yeah, that's what New Zealand is known for, right? <laughs> uh, no, I meant Archaeotech. Oh right, right. Yeah, of course. Yeah, we don't want to. We don't want to put anything on New Zealand. It's too much pressure. Um, okay. Well, uh, now that we've just lost our our one other New Zealand listener, um, let's bring on Mr. Dan Bigman. Uh, actually, Doctor Dan Bigman. Sorry. Um, he. Uh, I, I met Dan at uh, UGA when I was there. We were in in very different programs, but that's where we met. And uh, Dan, how's it going? Wonderful. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. So why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about yourself, and then we'll get into what we're going to talk about. Okay. So I got into archaeology. I, I didn't. I sort of stumbled into it. I had, I had no idea that there were as many archaeologists out there as there are. I thought there was a handful of archaeologists in the world. And, uh, and when I went back to school undergraduate, I went to Lehman College in the Bronx in New York. And I said, you know, I was a little bit older and I said, I'm going to try to do it right and take as many different classes as I can and really try to figure out what I want. Mm-hmm. I ended up in this archaeology class uh, called Ancient Peoples and Cultures. And I just, you know, I fell in love with, with the course and I fell in love with, with the teacher. It was just super exciting uh, to listen to, you know, three times a week. And I came home one day and I said to, to my wife, uh, I said, I want to do what this guy does. You know, I just, <laughs> that, that was it. You know, I, 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 I was in a sociology class too. I didn't want to do what that uh, uh, woman did. You know, I was in a couple other classes. I didn't want to do what they did. Um, but in the archaeology class, uh, I just kind of clicked, you know, and so it was out of nowhere sort of for me. Um, and then I came to Georgia, right? So from New York, came to Georgia uh, specifically to go to UGA to work with uh, my advisor, uh, mm-hmm. Steve Kovaleski. And uh, initially I had anticipated working in Mexico where he did the majority of his uh, career and doing large-scale, full-covered regional surveys, uh, which are critical to archaeology, mm-hmm. uh, with him down there. And I moved to Georgia, and uh, I took an archaeology of Georgia class. I took a geophysics class, and I walked into his office one day, and I said, would it be okay if I changed my focus and <laughs> worked in Georgia and did geophysics? Um, and I was really lucky to have him as my advisor uh, because he was just, you know, he was very understanding and, and warm about it and, and, uh, uh, and encouraged me to, you know, to pursue what was interest, interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was such an amazing advisor. He was able to stay on as my advisor, even though it wasn't necessarily his focus. Um, but because he's such a, I think, a scholar, he can speak to so many different things that he was able to still organize what I think turned out to be a pretty uh, good project. Um, and so that's how I made it down to, to Georgia and I ended up staying in Georgia. I said, well, you know, I can sort of work in my backyard. There was really cool archaeology in my backyard. And, uh, uh, and and equally as interesting to sort of go and learn, you know, about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was sort of my pathway into uh, into archaeology, and, and that's where I, I did my degree. So I ended up getting my uh, doctorate, like you said, at the University of, of Georgia. And then uh, after that, I taught for two years at Georgia State University as a visiting lecturer. Mm-hmm. And when that contract was up, uh, luckily I think I had developed a number of skills using geophysical, uh, you know, geophysical techniques to to you know apply to archaeological and historic sites. That I ended up going uh, on my own uh, and starting a, a company, a consulting firm that focuses on uh, you know non-invasive survey methods. 
Right, and that is uh, big man geo, big man, big man geo. I keep wanting to say big man when I see it, um, but big man geophysical dot com, and we'll have that link in the show notes as as well as any other uh, things we talk about today that we can put in the show notes. So check those mm-hmm. out. Um, I got to give a shout out to Steve too, Steve Kovaleski, because he was also on my uh, on my committee when I was at mm-hmm. um, UGA, and he was a he's a great guy. You're right, really flexible and always there for you. So it was a uh, was good working with him. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's. We're going to talk about a number of things. One of the things we talked about um, setting this up, though, was uh, ground penetrating radar. And I know ground tra- ground penetrating radar to me is one of those things that always seems like a little bit of magic to people. Um, and and it's and it's always very flashy because of the equipment and things like that. I mean, you go to the you go to big conferences like the SAAs, like the one coming up here in Orlando, and there's always the the GPR guys that are there, and they've got all the big fancy equipment. They've got the biggest booths, and <laughs> you can just drag these things around on their fancy carts. So, um, what is uh, what is ground penetrating radar for those that don't know? Let's just start with that, the basics. Okay, so so the the way that ground penetrating radar works is it's primarily an antenna that you drag across the ground surface typically. Um, I mean, there are other ways to, to utilize it, but generally mm-hmm. in archaeology, you drag this antenna across the ground surface, and it, it's a pair of antenna. It's uh, a transmission and a receiver. And so the, transmi- the transmitting antenna will produce an electromagnetic pulse, a radio wave that gets uh, pushed into the ground, and that travels through the subsurface. Uh, and the speed that it travels depends on uh, the medium that it's traveling through, right? So when mm-hmm. it's clay or sand, it's going to affect how fast the wave travels through the subsurface. Whenever the wave encounters some sort of discontinuity uh, in its speed, right? So when it changes speed, uh, some of the wavefront's energy is reflected back to the surface, and that's recorded with the receiver antenna. And so the receiver antenna will record the two-way travel time of that wave. So it'll tell you how, you know, when it, how long it took for it to reflect off some discontinuity mm-hmm. and how dramatic, right, that reflection was, um, you know, record the amplitude, and the amplitude is going to be based on how different the change in speed was, right, which is really related to how different the materials are. So if you go from dry sand to a little bit wet sand, there may be a reflection, but it's going to be very low amplitude. If you go from dry sand to metal, it's going to be a really dramatic difference in the materials, and that's going to produce a much higher amplitude reflection. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the unique thing about GPR uh, is it's it's the ability you know since you can record the two-way travel time and if you know the wave speed you can convert the two-way travel time into depth and so that's basically how it works uh as sort of simple as i can you know uh, make it and um and so it's one of the only true kind of three-dimensional uh data sets you know it it produces one of the only true three-dimensional data sets uh uh, for any geophysical you know technique so i'm wondering um Using your example of going through dry sand and hitting wet sand and, and getting a, a weak return on that, um, are there some like are there archaeological materials that that actually are things that would give you um, what would look like a, sort of a false positive like that, but is actually something and and you just you just can't really tell with GPR or maybe you have to be really good at it. I don't know, um, but are there some objects that can give that kind of return? You mean like a low amplitude return? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So if you think about this. You know, think about archaeology, um, think about Mesoamerica, because here's one area that sometimes seems to struggle with some of the geophysics uh, because the architecture was produced out of the same material that the, you know, host soil matrix was made out of. So you know, <laughs> right. some of these karstic areas, like in the Yucatan, for example, they're cutting out limestone mm-hmm. and they're creating these limestone. However, uh, uh, you know, it's sort of embedded in a reasonably high limestone uh, rich soil. And so when it goes from limestone to limestone, you know, the amplitude might be pretty small, even though the compaction is going to be different, right? A sort of limestone cut block is going to have slightly different properties than, you know, limestone-based, karstic-based soil. However, the materials are not that different from each other, right, other than compaction. So sometimes what you'll get is a weak reflection or no reflection uh, if the dielectric properties, if, if the physical properties are not all that different, you could struggle to identify uh, uh to identify that another limitation or, or another way that sort of you can excuse me completely miss an object is as the wave comes out of the antenna it comes out as a cone it kind of spreads with depth and if you're hitting uh, an object a floor that let's say has sl- it's buried but it's slumped on one side and so the orientation of it isn't directly back towards the surface you know it's possible that by the time the wave reflects off that 
you know, oblique angle, uh, the wave gets reflected, you know, away from the antenna itself. And mm-hmm. so you may actually miss it, right? You might not, you might not see it. So uh, there are definitely times that that, that can happen. Uh, and then on the on the flip side, and this happens uh, all the time, is you get non-archaeological materials that present themselves as, you know, archaeological features. Right. And so you might be in a cemetery trying to find, you know, it's a historic cemetery certainly trying to find uh, uh, old burials, stark burials, um, but a you know bioturbation might mask as a burial. Okay. Right or something like that. Um, so you definitely do get, you know, sometimes uh, a reflection that could be very difficult to interpret. And I do think a lot of that, you know, uh, comes with the ability to interpret it comes with uh, uh, experience. Now, speaking of interpretation, I was wondering about that too. Um, you're now two things. One, are you looking at these uh, the raw data as this thing is? Are, do you drag this thing across the ground and then and then go back to uh, go back to your office or whatever, download the data and look at it, or can you look at this as it's being created? You can look at it as it's being created. Um, it's not always ideal to do that, mm-hmm. but uh, in the private sector, sometimes you're you're limited, you know, by time constraints. Sometimes you're limited by uh, uh, you know money. And uh, and other resources, and uh, sometimes then you're you're doing you know real time interpretations and marking burials, for example. And certainly it's easier to do if you have a cemetery that's not all that old and that has you know intact coffins. Uh, sometimes it's easier. You see sort of uh, you know pattern reflections. They're systematic. They're all the same depth. You know, and you can see those over and over. And then you can make those interpretations really on the fly. Um, but to do the job right, you really should go back to you know software on the computer, go back to the lab and do some post-processing because a lot of times you'll miss something or mm-hmm. something flagged in the field. You know, you might go back and process your data and find that, well, it actually doesn't present like the rest of these reflections do. And, you know, it probably is not or may not be a burial, uh, uh, even though it might have been marked in the field. But you definitely can do real-time interpretation. And this is used as far as real-time interpretation is concerned all the time in civil engineering. So they'll mm-hmm. do things like locating utilities, and they'll mark those utilities in real time. But a lot of times, you know, those utilities have such a dramatic contrast to the host that they're in, whether it's concrete uh, uh, or, or soil. You know, a, a, a buried utility, certainly a buried metal pipe, is going to have a very clear reflection. And it's going to be, you know, going to be long. It's going to be, a, you know, a certain diameter. And you're going to see that consistently over time, you know, as you conduct the survey. And so mm-hmm. it's certainly possible to do things like flag, you know, uh, these kinds of things on 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 the fly, uh, and sometimes in in the pro, you know like on projects that's that's what it calls for you know and that's mm-hmm. what it dictates and uh, if you know they don't have enough if they don't have, the client doesn't have enough money to, for you know six days of processing uh, and they have money for two days and you know they're going to start doing something in in a cemetery uh, I think you're better off trying to do this in real time than than having to go the full boat you know sort of doing something is definitely better than doing nothing absolutely. Uh, I'm glad you brought up software too, because um, that that was leading into the question. Um, you know, we see on uh, uh, well, take for example, you see in like a, a movie or something about submarines where they've they've got a you know a certain return that they get back, and they know their computer crunches that out and says, "Oh, this is a you know a Russian blah 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 blah." You know, it's that kind of submarine because they've seen that return a thousand times, mm-hmm. and they it's it's the it's ID'd like that. Does the software for GPR, like if you do the post processing uh, in the office? Can the software be tuned to, to stuff like that and say, oh, yeah, what you're returning is a, is a metal pipe or it is a, you know, uh, a coffin or it is, you know, whatever you're looking for. Is it that sensitive enough or do you still have to sit and in- interpret a lot of that and just based on your experience? You still have to sit and interpret a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the things they're doing now for the software are um, recognizing horizons in the soil. So, you know, they'll see sort of linear patterns and they'll be able to delineate those uh, in the software through an algorithm, uh, which is very helpful. Uh, in other cases, you know, so so other other algorithms are being developed for, let's say, GPR also. Um, but what it does, is it basically sort of polygons the anomalies, you know, or or, or the reflection patterns, uh, you know, in like a time slice, which it would be a hard. So so when you collect the data, you're collecting it as a two-dimensional profile into the ground. But if you collect a number of those side by side, then you can resample those data and actually look at it top down. And we generally call those time slices, or if you convert them to depth, it would be called depth slices. 
-hmm. And if you have a depth slice that has, uh, uh, you know, linear patterns, for example, or square patterns, you know, indicating maybe buildings or something like that, um, there are some softwares that have algorithms that you can run that'll sort of give you uh, their best guesstimate as to where the geometric shapes are. And sometimes that's a good place to, to start. Um, so, so that is, that, that's coming along. I mean, and, and in a sense, sort of the software or sort of, you know, the, the, the development of algorithms is, is becoming really helpful, uh, but I still think you need to be able to interpret that stuff on your own. And, uh, you know, luckily a lot of studies have been conducted, let's say, for example, on cemeteries where GPR has been dragged over metal coffins, wooden coffins, collapsed in grave shafts, graves with no coffin at all, graves with deteriorated wooden coffins, graves, you know, in all sorts of different conditions. Mm -hmm. And by going over those over and over and over again, you begin to get a sense of uh, 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 of what to expect, right? And so as you survey a cemetery, you know, with this example, and you're seeing a bunch of potential graves, and as you go back and you process the, the data, it's not going to tell you this looks like a metal coffin, this looks like a, a, a wooden coffin, and this looks like a collapsed in burial. Um, you know, that comes with experience, that comes with doing survey, that comes with reading, you know, other people's case studies. Um, there's some really good resources out there, like Archaeological Prospection is a is one really good journal um, that's completely about geophysics. And, Arche you know, Journal of Archaeological Science also uh, produces a lot of these uh, uh, case studies. Uh, and seeing how people have dealt with different kinds of materials and different kinds of situations and different kinds of geological conditions and different kind of uh, 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 civic conditions, like whether it's urban or, you know, rural, that's going to have an effect, right? That sort of background noise is going to have an effect. So right. uh, taking all that into consideration, I still think that going back to the computer and looking at these things individually and trying to evaluate, uh, um, you know, what's going on as the practitioner is ultimately what should be done if it's possible to do. Nice. Well, so now that we understand more or less the capabilities of different geophysical approaches and some of the issues that affect its use, Dan, what would you say are the biggest strengths and the biggest weaknesses for geophysics? And also, like, what's the best case scenario for using GPR or electromagnetometry or resistivity? Um, so that was like a four-part question, Chris. And I'm going to try to remember. <laughs> I'm really all bad those, about that. <laughs> yeah, all, all those parts. Uh, um, but if I sort of get off track, just just remind me. Um, but strengths and, and, and weaknesses, right? Uh, the strengths of geophysics is, and there's a number of them, but number one, geophysics can produce a much larger data set generally uh, uh, than shovel testing surveys are going to produce, than even excavation will produce. Uh, the excavation will produce a very intensive data set where it's being conducted, but you can do uh, a geophysical survey uh, you know, or ground penetrating radar survey over a large area and very high resolution uh, and collect tons and tons and tons of data for, you know, in a very short period of time. And mm -hmm. so now that we have the capability to get this high resolution, you can, in some cases, see the distribution of almost all cultural resources, right? So that's a benefit is that you can collect tons of data and you can literally map. And we've seen, you know, some really good data sets like the data set from Etowah in Georgia, for example, uh, uh, you know, carried out primarily by the folks from University of South Carolina, uh, uh, Texas from San Marcos, and then um, uh, Archaeogeophysical Associates, uh, you know, where they mapped the entire site and basically got the locations of virtually every single, what appears to be almost every single house. And this is with a magnetometer. Um, and they did it in a handful of weeks, right? And so that was sort of, you know, unheard of or, or couldn't even be considered prior to the development of, of uh, uh, geophysics and with the improvement of software and, and, uh, uh, and hardware, right, and, and the actual instrumentation. So the ability to collect a ton of data in high resolution is a major advantage to, to, to this. Uh, a second advantage is that it's non-invasive, right? And, uh, you know, where excavation is going to disturb the archaeological record, we all know archaeology is a destructive science. Once the archaeological record is disturbed, unless you write that report up properly, it's gone, right? Mm -hmm. It's gone. And so what this allows you to do is target. It, it, this you know, I've had this debate with people. Uh, GPR, geophysics, I don't think is a replacement for, at least at this point, for excavation, right? Uh, you might have the the uh, map of an entire site, and you may have no idea when it dates to, right? Because you don't have a single artifact. So 
Still traditional methods are important and critical for archaeology, but coupling geophysics with traditional methods is going to allow a significant reduction in disturbance of the archaeological record, higher rates of preservation, targeting of excavation. So when we're, you know, people are fighting for money and funds and, you know, and, and, and labor uh, resources, uh, sometimes you say, you know what, I can only do six two by twos and that's it. Well, if you know, you know, or have a very good idea of where you should go and excavate those two by twos, you know, as, as opposed to random, then your likelihood of recovery, you know, for, uh, uh, of, of targeted features or, or the amount of knowledge you get out of those, you know, six or eight two by twos is going to be greater, right? So it's more of like a coupling of it, but what you do get is a total preservation with just the geophysics generally, uh, and the ability to then use that data set to target excavations, uh, which is going to be uh, really streamline the process uh, for it. So I think that those are, you know, major uh, benefits of, of geophysics. The drawbacks of geophysics are, like we were talking about before the show, instrumentation can be expensive. Uh, that's one problem. That's one limiting factor. Uh, mm -hmm. I think why it's not always used all the time. Um, another issue is training uh, is not ubiquitous. Um, a lot of university campuses or, or, or many will have a course or something like that on geophysics, but many don't. And uh, without the availability of that, you know, students are not going to get versed in something that really is becoming as essential as something like GIS, right? So yeah. having an understanding of GIS is required for archaeology today. And geophysics is going the same way. The difference is the training is not you, There's a, basically a GIS course on almost every single campus. There's a lot less uh, uh, courses being offered in geophysics, uh, period, or for archaeologists, uh, uh, you know, across across the board, at least shallow mm -hmm. geophysics, right? Near-surface geophysics. So uh, uh, that's currently a drawback. Another issue is communication with clients. So sometimes difficult to communicate with clients. Uh, you know, they saw Jurassic Park. They think that when you go over the burial, <laughs> you see bones, and when you show them a hyperbola, they go, what the hell is this? And then you have to sort of go through a whole process of explaining yeah. it, right? So um, I think that archaeologists need to do a good job, a better job, myself included, at uh, uh, engaging with the public, you know, uh, uh, managing expectations, um, you know, and, 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 uh, and then sort of relaying the results in a way that is meaningful but not overpromised. And so uh, sometimes I think this stuff either gets overpromised by the archaeologist themselves or the geophysicist, you know, who's not an archaeologist, uh, will overpromise, or the uh, uh, client or community has an expectation of what you're going to find or how it works, but it's wrong. And managing that expectation prior to the project, you know, kind of is a stumbling block. Um, right. One final limitation, I guess I would say, and there certainly are more, but uh, one final one is that, you know, there's variation in the quality of the data sets that are produced from geophysics, um, in, in addition to variation in the quality of the practitioner, right, of the person carrying it out, the person doing the processing, and the person doing the interpretation, there's variation in the quality of the data sets due to the sites. So not all sites are created equal, and GPR, for example, will perform differently under certain geological contexts and perform, you know, will perform better under certain geological contexts and perform worse under others. So, of course, me, who gets into geophysics, is in North Georgia, where there's tons of clay, and clay happens to be a pretty poor medium for ground-penetrating radar. Uh, it eats the signal up uh, really quickly, <clears throat> the wave travels slower, so overall, you know, the depth penetration is worse in clay. Doesn't mean it doesn't work. And people say this all the time, oh, you can't use it in clay. That's not true. I've actually used it in clay for most of my career, and it works. So, you know, it, it, it can always provide useful information. Um, but if I was, you know, in Florida where it's sand, you know, you're going to get much better results. And so, you know, down there for a project they did at Letchworth Love uh, Indian Mound State Park is the name of the park. It's a very large, multi-mound, uh, middle woodland site. Uh, we were using a GPR <clears throat> with a pretty low frequency that uh, we were on top of the mound. The base was about 12 meters down, and we saw the base of the mound, right? It was like an incredible uh, study. Mm. Um, but then up here sometimes, you know, I struggle to see the bottom of a grave pit um, <laughs> that might only be, you know, one meter down or, or a meter and a half down uh, because the signal's gone, you know, by that time. So that's right. a limitation. 
Um, I'll give you another example, you know, of, of, of how geology can affect it. So I used a magnetometer. I did a magnetometer survey at uh, a Civil War site um, in, uh, 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 in near, near Augusta, Georgia, uh, called Camp Lawton, <clears throat> which is a, a pretty famous site. And uh, it worked out really well. We found, you know, a number of potential targets that master students from George Southern might be able to go in and, and, and do their theses on in the future, as opposed to just randomly digging. You know, we have areas that appear to be clusters of artifacts or areas that appear to be, you know, buried refuse or burials. Um, however, across the site, there's naturally occurring um, uh, iron concretions and they do have a magnetic signature. And so when we see the anomaly, uh, you know, a, a dipolar magnetic anomaly, could be that iron concretion. It could be modern metal because it's a park. It could be somebody's garbage uh, or it could be a Civil War artifact. And so it's tough to tell sometimes, and uh, and that can you know so that's another example of a natural phenomenon that's a limiting factor you know for for geophysics. Well, Dan, uh, we're going to take a break here real quick, but I, I will say that uh, archaeologists should be familiar with those geological limitations because I also work slower in clay, and my depth penetration is typically less when I'm when I'm digging in clay. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll tell you, <laughs> I hate it, and I'm glad I'm out in the West. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'll tell you what. And it's, I, I'll tell you, it's rough pushing that clay through a screen. Oh my God. I've got some stories. I'll tell you what. Vermont, you didn't push it through the screen. You just kind of like sliced it into, into very thin slices and chucked it. Um, <laughs> however, working on the uh, on the coastal plain in, in North and South Carolina, you could dig 80 meter deep shovel tests in a day. So, I mean, it's just sand. But anyway. Um, all right. So we'll cover the uh, the other parts of Chris's multi-part question, which will likely take us to the end of the show um, and, and into a part two um, after a promo from another great podcast from the Archaeology Podcast Network. Back in a minute. Profiles in CRM, a weekly podcast. Ask CRM professionals eight simple questions. The first questions establish education, location, and experience. The last questions are a reflection of that experience, and the answers will surprise you. Check out the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash profiles. On that page, you can also request to be interviewed for the show. It only takes 20 minutes, and you don't need any special equipment. Let's get back to the show. All right, we're back. And I want to ask you, Dan, something about uh, relating to what you mentioned earlier about GPR being expensive and and in, in a training aspects. And, you know, uh, this is related to excavation and, you know, ground penetrating radar and other geophysical methods can can at least tell you what's not there versus what is there. And to me, as a business owner, that seems like I don't know. That seems like something that would be a pretty valuable piece of information if you can trust it and you can rely on it and you trust the people that are doing it to interpret the results correctly. It seems to me that hiring somebody like you to do this would be way cheaper than digging 20 or 30 negative cubic meters of excavation just to determine that there's nothing there. Um, so how, how much of your time is really spent dealing with that sort of question and just talking to people and saying, listen, this is worth it. Trust me. Uh, it will save you a lot of time, energy and money in the future. Uh, it, ha it happens all the time. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's <laughs> weekly, right? They have to sort of uh, explain to people <clears throat> the benefit of this. And, um, you know, part of the issue is is giving them confidence in the accuracy of the equipment, mm -hmm. right? giving them confidence uh, in it's going to be able to tell us what, you know, we want it to um, if, we, if we carry the survey out correctly. And that overall, you're actually not only going to save money, but you're going to have a much uh, uh, you know, denser data set than if you did 30 cubic you know meters of excavation. Uh, and so I deal with this all the time, not just in archaeology, but in other uh, areas. And I had a conversation the other week with somebody who's a, a this you know civil and geotechnical engineering. <clears throat> and so a lot of times, you know, before uh, uh, they you know do design and they have to figure out how much rock they got to pull out in order to flatten the landscape, uh, you know, they have somebody come in. Uh, not geophysics, and they come in and they borehole, and they might do 30 boreholes, right, to mm -hmm. to see the depth of the bedrock, okay? And that's going to sort of drive how they're going to deal with this. Right. And, and so we're going to – I'll get into archaeology in a second, but just as an example, right? On the flip side, for a fraction of the cost, 
I can cover much more than, you know, 30 pinpoints of space mm-hmm. and give you a three-dimensional model of the bedrock. And you know, then we can bring in, like I was talking about uh, before, you know, you went to break, then we can bring in the traditional methods, but they may only need to do three or four boreholes, right. get a much denser data set with the geophysics, still be able to evaluate the rippability of the bedrock and what the costs are going to be. Uh, and actually, instead of filling in all the rest of the space between these 30 pinpoints, they have it all filled in with remotely sensed data and then sort of just confirm with a borehole. So in in the, set, the case for uh, archaeology, right, you can excuse me, absolutely tell in, in many cases, um, you know, where to save your time. So, you know, where should you not spend your time excavating? Excavating is very costly. And, uh, uh, and if you can do what you can to limit, you know, where you excavate or, or the resource you're going to, you know, put towards excavation, if you can, you know, uh, uh, just sort of streamline it and be efficient and excavate in places that are more likely to produce something, um, then, you know, then I, I think you should do it. And so not only that, but a lot of times geophysics can provide like a safety net because you'll be on site, especially in urban areas, and you might be on a site that has utilities running across it. And, uh, you know, you shovel into a utility and that, you know, utility goes down and people lose power and somebody could potentially get hurt. You know, even if you have a plat beforehand uh, with a drawing on it where the utility was, those things are often wrong. Mm-hmm. And having geophysics conducted beforehand will say, look, don't dig here. There's a pipe or there's a utility. And so uh, I think it's very helpful in those situations as well. That um, increases safety on the site uh, uh, and then ultimately, right, reduces the 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 cost for you know the client um because you're able to map the entire site in, in some cases uh and then you know still do some excavation but it's really targeted nice dan you've covered some really good points about like the strengths and weaknesses of geophysics uh my question now is uh the public seems to have increased skepticism of geophysics as perhaps a bad science so what is the place of geophysics in like a public science and how do you overcome bad science? Um, it's a great question. And, and uh, I, I think everybody needs to do their part in uh, uh, engaging with the public and explaining uh, the benefits of geophysics and also the uh, limitations of it. And, I, you know, unfortunately what happens a lot of times is people carry out geophysical survey uh, or archaeological geophysical survey who aren't trained in geophysics necessarily. Often it happens they're not archaeologists and it's tough talking to them about what they're doing because they look at it from some other perspective as opposed to archaeology. But, uh, um, you know, they're untrained, not archaeologists, carry out an archaeological geophysical survey. It quote unquote doesn't work. And then people say, well, the technique doesn't work. In reality, training needs to be better. You know, it needs to be uh, more universal, and we need to do a better job of explaining the limitations of it to people, uh, uh, so they ex- understand what it can and can't do. It can do a lot, and I have yet to see a project that geophysics offers zero additional information. <laughs> I have not seen a project. It does mm-hmm. not always offer the information that you set out to get. But I have yet to see a project that geophysics offered zero information. It has always, to me, given some level of information that's useful for the project, that's useful for you know, the cultural resource project, that's useful for understanding human behavior, you know, whether it's anthropological, archaeology, in an academic sense, you know, whether it's useful for historic preservation. Uh, I've yet to see a project that no, initial, you know, that, that no additional data has come out of. Uh, uh, but but people don't recognize that, right? People look at, well, if it doesn't work on this project, it doesn't work. Well, rather, it might not work in this condition. The person might have used, let's say, for GPR, for example, the wrong antenna. Uh, um, you know, they, they uh, may have interpreted the results incorrectly. Uh, they may not have been trained. And then that gets fed into the public sort of mind as, right, it's bad science. It doesn't work. Um, you know, I had a I had a, a, a committee member who was an actual geophysicist. Right? I mean, I don't run around claiming I'm a geophysicist. I'm you know I'm an archaeologist and, and I'm a practitioner of geophysics. But I had a geophysicist on my committee, and 
you know, a lot of times people will say, well, you didn't verify your GPR data, right? How do we know that that's a grave right there, right? How do we know that some sort of buried structure uh, right there, some, some sort of historic foundation, right? How do we actually know that? You haven't excavated, you haven't dug. Well, to that issue, my committee member said, and I'll never forget this, his name is Rob Haman, he's in the geology department at, at UGA. He said uh, something to, to the effect of, I use seismic technique, which is also wave-based techniques. He goes, you use seismic techniques uh, uh, as a geophysicist to understand that the core of the earth is molten. <laughs> I will never be able to ground truth that, but we're pretty sure that the core of the earth, right, is what it is. <laughs> and, you know, and, and nobody disputes that, right? Nobody disputes that. Everyone recognizes that, look, if the wave travels like this and it comes across the middle of the earth from an earthquake on the other side of the earth and it gets recorded here, you know, here's the speed that it should travel if the physical properties are this, are X. Well, that's exactly how far it traveled in that amount of time. So, right, by deduction, you should anticipate that. You, know, you, 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 can, you can make the claim very you know, strongly that it is there. We don't do that enough, I think, with the public for archaeology. Yeah, right. Definitely making them recognize that the data are the data, right? I mean, we're not. I'm not. I'm not showing you uh, that there's a buried feature. I'm showing you here's a reflection from a wave. It took this amount of time. Here's the geometry of it. Here's what you would expect based on simulations of what a grave reflection should produce if this was the condition of the grave. And guess what? That's what we saw. We've excavated many, many, many of these things after they've been located with GPR. And so we can, you know, uh, 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 you know, we can deduce that this is likely a grave also. Not a guarantee, but it's likely a grave. And we don't, I think, take that approach, uh, uh, but, but we need to, right? And in part that talks about then the limitations. Right? What do we actually see? Well, we don't see the grave, right? What we see is a reflection and it has a certain geometry and it has a certain signature. And we use that to make some sort of inference about what that feature actually is, right? What caused that reflection? Um, but the more that we do it, and under the more circumstances and conditions that we do it in, you know, we have a better and better and better baseline in order to make those interpretations. And so I think that that's what we all need to do better, because I think that it's almost not even a problem as far as geophysics is concerned or archaeology is concerned. I think it's a problem with understanding the philosophy of science. And, you know, the, the, the unfortunately, the public, I, I don't think, gets enough of that. You know, they sort of get big headlines in the news, and that's sort of their their science daily or, you know, for the week or whatever. Um, but rarely do we talk, you know, sort of philosophy of science. And, and you don't have to do that, I think, deeply. I think you can get sort of some of those main points across. But I think that would help everybody in the world who does, you know, has a scientific approach uh, uh, in dealing with the public. That's a great answer, Dan. And the philosophy of science is such a huge point that sure. I think the general public gets lost on it, no matter what the science is, whether it's geophysics, archaeology, or even climate science, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's one of those things that just because they don't understand it doesn't mean it's magic. And also, like, there are debates in any field of science. That's just the nature of how we go about mm -hmm. our science. Look, you can take, I, I agree. And, and I think that you brought up a really important point, which is like, you know, climate science, um, because it's such a hot topic, you know, in, in the public eye. And whether or not there really is climate change or sort of, you know, rapid, uh, more rapid climate change because it's human induced. Uh, you know, I think in part people reject it and, and in part politicians reject it because, uh, um, you know, I, I don't know if they're viewing it through the correct lens. But yeah. to, to break it down, here's truth. This is truth. I'm going to tell you right now. You excavate a site in the southeast United States. I got to talk from the southeast because that's where basically my whole career is. <laughs> in the southeast, you excavate a site. It's a Mississippian site, let's say, and you get post holes, right, uh, uh, that have remnants in, let's say, the Georgia red clay. You're going to get a post hole that's basically a stain of soil, mm -hmm. right? You guys follow me so far? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That stain of soil, let's say you excavate it out. There's no artifact in it. Okay, you excavate it out. Now, what's the archaeology? But, and you have a pattern of them, and they're, you know, uh, uh, square with rounded corners, right? What's going to mm -hmm. be the interpretation? Oh, it's a building. Right, and that those stains are the you know post poles, right? They're the mm -hmm. remain you know the, the remnants of uh, uh, decayed organic material that once was a wooden post. Well, did we actually find that? No, we didn't. What we found was a soil stain, right? That's what it is. 
and we make an inference. But people have no problems not rejecting that soil stain pattern as representing a building. Mm-hmm. Geophysics really should be looked at in the same way. Right? Yeah. In reality, what did you find? What are your data when you uncover it through excavation? Your data are a series of soil stains. That's what that's what it is. But then we, you know, by deduction, recognize that well, there are bio, you know, chemical processes that uh, uh, you know that create a certain kind of organic material, you know, after the wood decays, you know, so on and so forth. And this is what our expectation is that's going to be left after you know one thousand years. Okay, that's that's the process for GPR. It's should it's the same process, right? We don't see a post hole with the GPR, right? What we see is a reflection. Well, we might see a series of reflections that create a square with rounded corners, right? And we have an expectation of what that would look like with organic soil embedded in a clay matrix. So we can look at that and say, this is why, you know, uh, we believe, you know, or, or we interpret it this way because the reflection is, you know, that is the data point right there, just like the organic soil is the data point if you excavated it. So in neither case, you actually see a building. In both cases, you're making an inference. But when you excavate it out, people say, oh, well, that's verification. It's not. What you found was a soil stain. But I could have told you there's going to be a soil stain because I saw it reflect, you know, the GPR way. So, you know, it's, it's, it's the same process. And I think people don't recognize, you know, what the data actually are, what the evidence actually are, and that in all of this, we're making inferences, but they're really substantiated inferences. And so with GPR, people, I think, can recognize that it's, you know, there are physical laws here that are at play that aren't going to randomly produce some sort of behavior with the wave uh, uh, just because, you know, the earth felt like it that day. You know what I mean? I mean, it, just, <laughs> it, happens. I mean there, it happens because there are physical you know, uh, properties at play and the wave is going to behave in a, in a way that waves behave. And that's what we're interpreting. And then we're making inferences based on that. So there are some limitations. However, we can make very good inferences, you know, and the more that we use it and the, and the more context we use it, I think we can make more and more accurate inferences, you know, based on uh, just what, seeing those reflections or seeing those you know, variations in the magnetic field or seeing those, you know, induced uh, electric currents, you know, for using like conductivity you know, or whatever the case may be. All right. Well, we're going to take our final break before we come back and wrap this up. And I'm glad you brought in some other methods because that's what we're going to wrap this up with. We're going to talk about some of that and uh, and maybe some other things right after this break. The CRM Archaeology Podcast brings together a panel of cultural resource management professionals to discuss the issues that really matter to the profession. Find out about networking strategies, job hunting, graduate programs, and much more. We'll often feature interviews with college professors, CRM business owners, and experts as well. Check out the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Arc Podcast. Let's get back to the show. Okay, we're back for our final segment. And uh, Dan, you brought in some some other geophysical methods right at the end of the last segment. And that's kind of what I want to talk about next. We're not going to go into those as heavily as we did GPR. But to, to sort of lead into those, I want to ask you, um, when a client comes to you and says, we need geophysical, you know, XYZ done over here, um, how do you decide what needs to be done? What sort of method needs to be used? Is it solely based on what they think is there? Like as if, if it graves and stuff like that, or is it based on the soil or, you know, what, what, what helps you decide what geophysical methods you're going to use? Uh, all, all of what you said, you know, so, uh, mm-hmm. the more information we have prior to survey, the better we're going to be able to strategize for the survey. And okay. uh, the less information we have, the more difficult it is. Um, mm-hmm. So, so the you know any prior information is going to be helpful. If it's an archaeological site that has reports written up on it already, we have some anticipation of you know of, of what are expected to to, to be found. Uh, that's very helpful. Uh, geological conditions are going to uh, uh, influence what we use, um, and then uh, certainly the the budget you know of the project is going to uh, dictate what we use. Uh, a lot of times, you know, I encourage clients. Uh, to use multiple methods because each method gives you, you know, it, it maps a different physical property of the soil. And so, uh, you know, most studies have shown when you do multiple methods that 
some features are going to show up in all two or three methods that you use. But you might get some features that only show up with magnetometer. And you might get some features that only showing up with, you know, ground penetrating radar. Um, so we encourage it, but we're sometimes limited, uh, you know, by those factors. So the strategy is usually based on prior information, geological conditions, goals of the survey, right? Goals of the survey. Right. Uh, and, uh, and we use all that and budget. And then we use all that uh, uh, to create a, you know, a strategy. So for example, just to take, you know, 20 seconds, um, if I'm working with an academic institution and they, you know, want to evaluate uh, uh, a mound, you know, again, and they're on a limited budget and they want to know, you know, kind of how many stages was the mound constructed in, like a, like a Mississippi mound or wooden mound or something like that. Um, you know, the goals of that survey are going to dictate something like GPR. And then possibly, if they can afford it, something like electrical, you know, electro, uh, elect, electrical resistivity. Um, you know, but if you have a shallow site that has a lot of organic, you know, material like in post holes or hearths or, uh, uh, you know, other kinds of, you know, refuse pits, uh, then maybe a magnetometer is going to be the better technique, right? You're going to be able to cover it maybe faster than with the GPR, uh, uh, and it might, you know, identify those targets uh, possibly, you know, with, with, with better precision as well. Okay. Well, that's, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, what, what is the, let's, I'm trying to think of, of how to answer this, ask this question. I'm, I'm wondering about size. Um, mm -hmm. like at what point, uh, like, let's say for example, I've done a lot of work in the Southeast and, you know, we'll have a project where, you know, they tell us to go out and do shovel tests across 1500 acres, you know, something like that. I'm wondering at what, I guess budget would be the only real limiting factor, but for most CRM firms or even academic institutions, what kind of size of project do you think would be um, the average that you would do? Um, would you do you would do this on again? Like you said, budget is usually a limiting factor, but in your experience, you know, are we talking um, several hundred square meters, or are we talking a couple acres, or something like that, or you know, what kind of size of projects do you guys usually do? Um, I tend to do projects uh, anywhere from. You know, I mean, some are very small, you know, some might be like a 30 meter by 30 meter, uh, would be you know, a very small project, uh, up to sometimes, you know, 10 or 15 uh, acres, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I've done some, I mean, so, so for my dissertation project, on another hand, right, it was up to almost 40 acres, right, so it was about, uh, you know, 15 or, or 16 hectares that, that we covered, um, you know, but it's doable on very large scale, so now... Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of that has to do with budget because the instrumentation they're coming out with, you can uh, hook into uh, a four-wheeler oh, and wow. drag it and put a GPS right on the instrument and just go around, right? And so mm -hmm. you can cover hundreds and hundreds of acres pretty quickly with that equipment. The problem is, right, in this case, literally is budget. You know, a piece of equipment like that, a multi-channel GPR that might have like 12 channels or something – you know, so basically there's 12 antenna that are collecting at the same time. And then with a, you know, a, a, a GPS that, <clears throat> that is uh, accurate enough, you know, let's say within like 10 centimeters uh, to, to, to be carrying something like that out, uh, that GPR is going to be $150,000. So it's very expensive. You also need the four-wheeler. You also need the GPS. Um, and, and, you know, some people are able to do that. Uh, and some firms even in North America – for example, you know, do some, you know, do that with the magnetometer. So they put ten channels on the back of a, you know, a golf cart or a, or, or a, a gator or something like that, yeah. and they can roll around pretty quickly uh, sites by having it, you know, logged into a, a GPS collecting uh, GPS units in, in real time. So you can do very, very, very large surveys, mm -hmm. but there's a major cost, right, to to something like that. Um, but I would say more frequently, you know, things are you know numbering in the single digits or you know, two digit uh, acres, uh, certainly for things like GPR, especially when it comes to things like CRM, mm -hmm. right? It's much sure. more rare that you're going to get a, a, a 1500 acre project that you're going to do GPR over, uh, especially if there's all sorts of obstructions, right? Mm -hmm. Along 1500 uh, acres. So they're usually not that size um, based on logistics based on 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 budget but it is doable and i would say in the future that kind of thing is going to be more and more and more doable and, and people are going to you know are, are going to do large scale geophysical survey because they're going to stick a and you know a, a 12 channel gpr antenna on the front a 10 channel you know magnetometer on the back have a 
centimeter precision, <laughs> you know, brand new Trimble GPS on it. They're right. going to all wrap, and it's going to be an amazing, you know, uh, uh, system. Uh, uh, and and as prices come down, which they tend to do, uh, we'll see the implementation of that more and, and and more. But I don't generally do that. I haven't found any CRM projects that have done that with with geophysics uh, mm-hmm. on that kind of scale. You know, uh, they generally tend to be, uh, um, you know, uh, in the single digits or you know ten or twenty acres right. uh, is, is is what I've encountered. Probably, probably when they get down to the um, like the phase two, quote unquote phase two stage, when they're down to site testing, mm-hmm. I would say was a lot of CRM projects would probably um, request those sorts of services. Yeah, uh, I think that's the stage yeah. that it can benefit. Yeah. Right? So when you get to stage two, uh, you know, phase two, you know, you sort of you, you cover fifteen hundred acres, and you find you know a series of areas that actually had positives, mm-hmm. and you go in and now you're going to start exposing you know more. You're going to be doing some test pits or whatever the case may be. Right. You know, it, but if let's say in this fifteen hundred acre project, you know you have, uh, uh, you know ten different sites that you've located, you know each site could be covered potentially pretty quick, assuming it's not some major town, you know Mississippian town or or major, uh, you know town in the southwest or something like that. If we're talking you know pre-contact or whatever, um, you know you can cover those sites pretty rapidly with mm-hmm. geophysics, and again even if you can't see the exact outlines of architecture, a lot of times you're able to tell site size which is an important indicator uh, without excavating, you know, mm-hmm. and you can tell a number of other things like uh, as related to, you know, section 106, you know, what's the condition of the site? You know, a lot of times geophysics, especially GPR, can give you some sense of the conditions of the subsurface, you know, so whether it's not, you know, it can be nominated or not, in part is going to have to do with, you know, what, what, uh, uh, you know, what, what condition the site is in and GPR can certainly detect, uh, uh, you know, subsurface problems you know i mean you, you can detect how how uh, much disturbance has occurred you know through tree root disturbance mm-hmm. and things like that very rapidly right and so uh, in those situations i think that it's a it's a, a major benefit to come in with with geophysics and, and ground penetrating radar potentially prior to you know shovel testing or uh, or or doing you know excavation pits right so we're talking about major benefit but really what we mean here is it makes it cheaper uh, right, in the right. long run should, yeah exactly absolutely. So let's uh, uh in in the last you know six seven minutes here let's talk about that. What right. does cheaper actually mean? You know what is a what does a typical geophysical survey cost? You know in terms of the rate uh, uh, for doing this, and then we can people who are listening to this that know how much shovel testing costs, for example, can equate that to uh, to their own cost because every company has slightly different costs, I'm sure, depending on what region you're in. So so what does a typical geophysical survey you know typically cost? Um, so the way that my rates are, uh, just to, you know, put it out there, uh, and, and this ranges, you know, it ranges, uh, uh, I think across the country, it ranges, you know, depending on the firm, uh, it ranges depending on the, on, on, who's carrying out the survey. Um, so my, the rate that I generally charge is $1,500 per day. Um, mm-hmm. but I've seen that range, you know, generally the range is between about a thousand and $2,000 per day is what I've encountered. Some people will offer it for much less than a thousand dollars, and and I tell my clients, and when they say, "Well, you know, somebody else is you know half your price," uh, I say, "Well, make sure that you budget in for for when you actually hit the grave, you know, because mm-hmm. probably will." Uh, and then others uh, have have higher rates than that. Uh, some people I've seen up to twenty five hundred. So uh, I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm, you know, I think that we're reasonably priced, but I think that we're priced really well for the service that we provide and the experience that that I bring, you know, mm-hmm. to the projects. Um, but that, that's what it is. And so how much can you cover in a day, right? So what does $1,500 a day translate into? Right. Uh, and you can generally cover, at least this is what I have found, uh, one to two acres a day. And uh, there's generally one to two days of data processing, analyzing, and writing uh, um, you know, associated with every day in the field. Okay. So, you know, one to two acres, uh, uh, you know, may run somewhere between, you know, 3000 to, to 4500 bucks. Um, but then again, don't forget that's a. I think let's say you're using GPR. It's a very high resolution data set that can potentially be three dimensional. Uh, you know that, that you can guide uh, excavations with or not, right? I mean, you might be able to say, look, for forty five hundred bucks, don't dig here, mm-hmm. as opposed to putting in a number of pits that you know would take time and 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 uh, money too. Right. Okay. Well, um, we've only got a couple minutes left. Uh, what? Um... 
you mentioned during the pre-show using cadaver dogs, uh, mm-hmm. and would you consider that a, a geophysical method? <laughs> well, I mean, it's sort of a, a it's a it's a biochemical method, <laughs> right. uh, I, I think technically, um, but but it's certainly remote sensing, right? Yeah. I mean, oh, for sure, absolutely remote sensing. It's a non-invasive remote sensing, and the dogs uh, smell human remains scent. Uh, so I've had to actually get versed, okay, in whole new series of language uh, with these, uh, and they're not even cadaver dogs, right? So my expert that I brought in uh, was like, they're actually human remains detection dogs, uh, you know, or HRD dogs. Um, So, which has been kind of a cool learning process too, you know, for for me. Um, But that's for sure a uh, non-invasive, remotely sensed uh, uh, technique. And the success that I had with it at uh, Kettle Creek Battlefield, which is a a Revolutionary War battlefield, uh, was 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 excellent. It, mm-hmm. it, it was really good success. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I enjoyed it, and, and we're looking to try to bring them back to cover more space, right? I mean, it worked so well in the pilot study at, at Kettle Creek Battlefield mm-hmm. that we wanted to cover the entire battlefield uh, with the dogs now. Awesome. All right. Well, I think we're gonna uh, we're gonna kill this podcast right here. We can have Dan on to talk about some other geophysical methods um, later on because I think. Uh, I think as archaeologists, we could talk about this all day long. Um, and there's, we could spend a whole a whole episode on probably magnetometry, resistivity, you know, all that other stuff. So, um, and and we could bring that in, and we we will likely do that. For those of you that like to shut the podcast off at this point, um, I encourage you not to. Um, <laughs> first off, always listen to my show notes or, or my credits. Damn it, uh, they're they're valuable. I know people, including my wife, who shut podcasts off right before the credits. <laughs> That being said, um, uh, we're going to have another segment right after this um, that's going to have some some pretty awesome information. So so keep listening, and uh, we're going to kill it right here. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. And thank you, everybody, for listening. I appreciate your attention. Uh, I know it's your time, but thank you so much. Absolutely, and we will talk to you next time. I'm here with Dan Bigman of Bigman Geophysical with an awesome special offer for APN listeners. Dan, what have you got for us? Well, uh, for the past year, I've been everywhere I've went, people have requested training on ground penetrating radar. And they've all voiced concerns that there's nowhere to get accessible quality training uh, for a really reasonable price. So what Bigman Geophysical is doing is we're going to put on a three-part webinar series on GPR basics, ground penetrating radar basics, that's going to take place Mondays, April 18th, April 25th, and May 2nd, 2016. In this course, we're going to break it into three parts. Part one is going to go over basic concepts and theory of ground penetrating radar. Part two is going to talk about processing data, visualizing data, and GPR data interpretation. And then part three is going to be all about case studies and applications of ground penetrating radar to uh, several different industries, including archaeology. And how long does each class period last? So each class period is going to have a live section on Monday. Uh, for each of those Mondays, it's going to be about an hour and 15 to an hour and a half of, of class time. And then uh, there's going to be additional time for question and answers throughout each course. What we're also going to do is do an unlimited replay for each topic for each week from Wednesday to Sunday. So if you miss it or you want to see it again, which we hope you do, then you'll be able to log into a special website and replay uh, the webinar. And how much is this going to cost us? So the regular price of this webinar is $2.99. And what we're going to do for APN listeners as a special deal is give a 25% discount for the first seven days that we're running registration. So that's going to go from March 7th till March 14th at 8 p.m. Eastern time for that 25% discount. After that, we're still going to give APN listeners uh, a discount that's, uh, you know, just for them, it's going to be 10%. But if you really want to get in this for relatively inexpensive, then the 25% off is going to give you a rate of 225 for the course. So where can people go to sign up for this class? You just have to pop over to bigmangeophysical.com forward slash APN to get the special rate. That's B-I-G-M-A-N-G-E-O-P-H-Y-S-I-C-A-L.com forward slash APN.
And there they can sign up and go to a secure website to enter all their information and get that 25% off. So whether you're a seasoned archaeologist or just getting started, this course will really be an asset for everyone. Head over to bigmangeophysical.com forward slash APN, or you can click through from the APN website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com to get your 25% off today. That's it for another episode of the Archaeotech Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeotech. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for this episode. You can also email us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag archaeotech or tag at archpodnet in your tweet. Please share the link to this show wherever you saw it. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.